It had to be you. Is that men and women can't be friends because the sex part always gets in the way. Hello, romantics. Welcome to It Had to Be You, the Talk Film Society podcast that's all about falling in love on the big screen. I'm your host, Manish Mather, and it's the uh, 60th episode of the podcast. I know we've been kind of off and on for last uh, for a while now, but really excited because I am bringing back a very uh, special and very, uh, very wonderful guest. Our um, first guest for the first ever episode almost, uh, wow, three years ago. Uh, that's um, my good friend, Maxwell Haddad. How are you? I'm doing very well, Manish. How are you today? Doing well. Very happy to have you back on the podcast, and you know it's always a pleasure to uh, chat with you about movies and and everything in between. So yeah, really happy that you're here. It's uh, it feels like a perfect full circle moment to have done the first episode and now the celebratory 60th episode, particularly because of the film we're doing. It has a nice tie-in with the number 60, and I like numerology. And- yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you so much having me. I always, I always love talking cinema with you. I think you have a really insightful and fun cinema mind, and I've always found your love and respect for romantic comedies in particular to be really refreshing, because it's a genre that some people look down upon, and I love them, and, you know, I think there's love for everyone to go around in all kinds of movies, so. Yeah, I agree, um, and I appreciate that. So, um, why don't you introduce the film for us today? Yeah, so we are going to be talking about Down With Love. This movie is directed by Peyton Reed, who has now gone on to have success in the MCU with the Ant-Man films. Uh, came out in 2003, starring uh, Renee Zellweger and one of my absolute favorite actors of all time and my biggest celebrity crush over the last <laughs> two and a half decades, Ewan McGregor. Um, this is a really delightful, witty riff on sort of the Doris Day and Rock Hudson set comedies um, like Pillow Talk, uh, and the movie is Down With Love. Yeah, I really like this movie, and I'm really glad that, uh, that you had mentioned it as, a, as an option for kind of your, you know, your comeback episode. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, I, you know, I'd like to ask the guests about the first time they saw the film and kind of what their impressions were back then and how it's, you know, evolved over the years. Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, Ewan McGregor has been my, like, stalwart celebrity crush. This really stemmed from a combination of The Phantom Menace, but then more importantly, Moulin Rouge. Moulin Rouge, yeah. Which is my second favorite movie of all time, still to this day. Um, So by that point, any time a new Ewan McGregor movie was coming out in theaters, I went and saw it, if not opening day, as soon as I could. And that was definitely the case here. I saw this in theaters in 2003. I can remember the theater I saw it out, saw it at in my hometown in South Florida. I can remember who I saw it with. I can remember 
absolutely falling in love with it because I think at the time the reviews were mixed. Some people loved yeah. it, and then some critics thought it was just sort of like a soulless knockoff of those sort of 1960s movies. But I was immediately taken by it. Um, and this has been uh, a movie that has become a major comfort movie for me over the years. If I'm homesick, if I'm having a depressive episode, or if I'm like flipping through my Blu-rays or streaming services and like have spent too long figuring out what to watch, I'll be like, you know what? Let's just throw on Down With Love. I enjoy it every time. So it's a movie I've seen, I would say, at least 25 times since oh, it came wow. out. Yeah. Um, so this is a favorite of mine. It's one of those go-to movies, and I think it has held up so well over the years. In fact, I would argue... I've seen the appreciation for it only grow since it released as more people discover it and more people become attuned to what it was attempting to do. Yeah, I, so I, yeah, totally, yeah, I totally agree with a lot of what you're saying. Uh, I also um, saw it, you know, when it came out. I, I actually also remember the theater I saw it in, well, partly because that was the only theater in, in the town, so uh, I was in high school. I must have been about uh, thir- 14 or 14 or 15, or maybe 13, and I saw it because of Renee Zellweger. Uh, I was a big fan of the movie Chicago, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think Empire Records was one of those movies that I was like, ooh, this is so adult, you know? Oh, I, I uh, love Empire Records. I have... But, um, I have uh, Empire Records illustration on my wall behind oh, me. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's so cool. By the, the great artist, Brianna Ashby, who you should definitely follow on Twitter if you don't, everyone who's listening. Yeah, yeah, we love we love Brianna. She's very talented. Um, tried to get her on the podcast, but she's very busy with her uh, her her work. Uh, so it's been Jeez. a bit of a challenge, but um, yeah, I mean, I saw this for Renee Zellweger, and you know, you and Gregor, of course, you know, my appreciation and crush on him has only grown over the years. In fact, as he gets older, he gets more and more attractive. Um, you know, yes, like, like as we're recording this, the new Obi Wan Kenobi yeah. series just <laughs> filming, and he looks so good. Yeah, I don't know what it is about, you know, these Star Wars shows and, like, there's, like, the, you know, it's, like, the daddy and, like, child dynamic is very, makes makes the actors, you know, yeah, Pedro it's, Pascal. It's, you know, and It's very much a lone wolf and cubs. Scenario. Yeah, exactly. And yet, for some reason, both Pedro and Ewan, like you said, give such daddy energy. <laughs> so attractive. And, like, I mean, even in Doctor Sleep, I'm like, you're a mess, but I just want to, like, help oh. you out, you know? He, yeah, I um, think... <laughs> And the funny thing, too, is I, I would say Ewan McGregor may be the most talented actor working right now who's never been nominated for an Oscar. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think he, he can, like, do everything, you know. Hmm. I mean, he... Um, you know, he fits so well in like, the Star Wars universe. He fit really well in Doctor Sleep and and Down with Love. I mean, he's very funny. Of course, you know, Moulin Rouge is iconic, and you know, he's so romantic and musical and longing. So he can really do it all. I mean, I have yet to see a movie of his where I'm like, Ugh, what were you doing there? Um, even in even in Birds of Prey, I thought he was yeah, so he's really delicious. good at that. Yeah. Like he he did that over the top mustache twirling villain with a little queer energy so perfectly I'm glad you mentioned Chicago though because I'm pretty sure the trailer for this movie played with Chicago yeah it must have because it came out because Chicago was like December of 2002 and then this was early summer of 2003 if I'm remembering correctly Um, and so I think that's when the first teaser uh, came out so that was probably how I discovered it as well and I also love Chicago yeah, yeah. I mean, Chicago was like, you know, it's like one of those like defining movies for me where I was like, oh wow, like this is what movies can do, you know. 
And um, I follow that movie like religiously, like before it came out and had the soundtrack. I still know every word to every song. Um, and I also agree with you that the appreciation for Down with Love has only increased over the years. I remember when, um, you know, when Ant Man was coming out and Peyton Reed was hired uh, after you know Edgar Wright was fired. I was, mm-hmm. I was one of those people that was like, okay, maybe Edgar Wright, you know, would have been would have made a great movie. I'm sure he would have, but like Peyton Reed's not really a hack, you know. Like no. he's done a lot of great movies and a lot of really visually interesting ones, like Down with Love and Bring It On, of course. And I'm even a fan of uh, Yes Man. I think that's a pretty cool looking movie. Um, so I he. Brings a, he brought a lot of like visual dynamics to Ant Man and, and the sequel, <clears throat> so I'm kind of glad that he's kind of bringing his own kind of like zippy charm, you know, to 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 that series because I think, you know, Ant Man is I think like the mini franchise that can be the most kind of like quirky and like um, like witty and stuff just because of Paul Rudd and, um, and just the like the way the movies have set those tones so and I feel like Down With Love got a really big reappraisal when that movie came out because it was hard to find for a while like it wasn't on um it wasn't on Blu-ray and I I don't think it ever really had that like Netflix run no Um, I don't even think it is on Blu-ray yet no I don't think so Um, I I own it on on Amazon Prime so I could stream it whenever I want yeah I actually I have my best friend uh, used to be a projectionist at movie theaters back when you had to like thread celluloid and do all that stuff. So she had a whole box of trailers, and she sent me the trailer to Down with Love. So although I have no way of playing it, I have the trailer for this movie on 35 millimeter. That's just pretty cool. On the shelf as like a memento. But I think you're right about Peyton Reed. I remember similarly already sort of recognizing that the Ant-Man franchise was going to be like the comedy series yeah. within Marvel. Because um, Edgar Wright is nothing if not a comedy filmmaker first and foremost. Right. Anyways, Peyton Reed, like you said, he's not a hack. He, he has great timing. And I think this movie in particular shows his strength of visual language when he's given the freedom uh, to do what he wants to do. Yeah. Um, and that has carried out throughout his career. So... When you saw this movie, were you aware of you know the pillow talk and you know um, and that whole like subgenre of comedies, or was this your first? Uh, this was sort of exposure? sort of my first foray into it. You know, so yeah. in two thousand three, when this came out, I would have been sixteen, going on seventeen. Um, I always enjoyed movies growing up, but I didn't start becoming a more serious cinephile until I was fourteen. Yeah, um, and so around the time I saw this is when I was, you know, a year or two into my deep dive into classic cinema and world cinema and just really starting to build up my cinema acumen. So I hadn't really gotten into those yet. But I remember as soon as I saw this and then having done some reading about it, I immediately went and rented uh, Pillow Talk and watched it. And I love that movie, too. And I think of all the Doris Day, Rock Hudson movies they did together. Pillow Talk is is the closest to this one, and they do make a pretty great double feature. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm trying to remember back, like when I first saw it, I hadn't seen Pillow Talk either. I, I don't think I 
think I knew Rock Hudson by name as just like some like figure from Hollywood that like everyone's like you know one of those like everyone knows him kind of star. But I don't think I I had no idea who Doris Day was, and definitely I watched Pillow Talk in college because I think we studied it in uh, a film class and. Um, so that was the first time I'd ever seen that. So yeah, but I'm trying to remember back, like, did, like, this movie must have, like, worked on me, even without having any knowledge of that genre, because I obviously liked the movie, but I was like, did you have that experience of, like, or did you feel like, I don't really know what's happening here, and... No, I, honest, I remember, I just felt so taken by the world building. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's such a a whimsy to the set design to the costumes none of it feels real but it feels so well designed that it it, it ends up having its own internal authenticity um and and you know it just you know having sort of grown up split between florida and new york and, and spending so much time in new york there was a even though it was the 60s and sort of very fantastical version of it, this movie has a very new york quality to it mm-hmm um, it, it's a, a one of those great New York movies where the city almost becomes its own character. Yeah, you know, there's these like great montages of the two characters going on all these dates. Obviously filmed in front of green screens, but it's still such a fun way to like explore the different landmarks of the city. So I didn't feel like there was any barrier of entry. I think even if you're not familiar with the Doris Day Rock Hudson movies or or even the swinging sex comedies of the 60s, it works on its own terms. Yeah, I agree. I think this movie definitely um, has a lot to offer, even if you're not really aware of it, of sort of like what it's spoofing. And I agree with you that like this is a great New York movie. And sometimes I feel like really great New York movies are the ones that like aren't filmed there. Because it's like sometimes New York can have that like magical, like surreal quality to it, especially if you're like, you know, especially if you're like going on dates in New York or you're like doing, finding sort of like random spots or going to like, you know, just really like beautiful like uh, landmarks. It's like it doesn't feel real. So sometimes, like when a movie's like filmed on a soundstage, like it has that, it can capture that quality of New York, even if mm-hmm. it's not actually there. Um, or even like, um, sometimes New York can also feel very artificial in a way that is appealing or alienating. And I think, like, like I think Eyes Wide Shut is a great New York movie, even though oh, it's yeah. not... It's filmed in London, but for some reason, like, having those sound stages makes, like, the artificiality feel more apparent. New so, York is... is uh, like, I, I think we both live in New York. I think yeah. that's... Um, it's an incredible city, but it, it has an inherent artificiality to it. There are yeah. moments where I'll just be out and about... And I'll be like, is this real? Yeah. This is and I agree, Eyes Wide Shut is a great point because I mentioned this movie uses green screen for those montages and, and all sorts of other fun techniques to build its New York. And Eyes Wide Shut famously just has Tom Cruise walking on a treadmill with like images of New York rear projected behind him. And yeah. it feels so surreal. But New York is surreal. Yeah. And so even more so than just going and like shooting on Broadway or down in the village or in Queens, creating a fake version of New York almost sometimes rings more true to what New York feels like. <laughs> yeah. 
sure. uh, yeah that's and, and that's what's so great about down with love is that um like artificiality is sort of like baked into into the movie like i don't even think pillow talk is like aiming for realism i think everything's heightened for you know for for a purpose and i think down with love really captures that um especially with like the apartment designs and the, the costumes are so over the top and um but everything just feels like it's so in line with the kind of tone and the um like sort of like the aesthetic they're going for yeah um i think one of the best aspects of this movie as you sort of mentioned are the set design and the costume design like yeah especially the costumes like there's a bunch of scenes where uh barbara who is renee zellweger's character and vicky who is sarah paulson's character and i'm sure we'll talk about sarah paulson because gosh she's good in this movie Mm -hmm. where they're wearing like collaborative efforts where you know one has yellow on the outside and the other has the black and white checks on the outside and then they open up their coats to reveal the uh, the color the other person is wearing yeah so those visual details even apart from the comedy and the romance of it make this movie so fun to watch and why i i have found it is so rewatchable because there's so many details um visually that i pick up on differently every time i watch it yeah i just want to point out um costume design was done by uh daniel or oriandi and um I'm trying to find, like, what else he's worked on, because I feel like... Yeah, I mean, he worked on, like, Saving Mr. Banks and Trumbo, so he has a lot of, like, experience with, um, you know, that kind of, that period, and so I feel like... Frost Nixon also. Frost Nixon, yeah. He's done period work. Yeah, so it just feels like, you know... There's such there's such like whimsy to it and yeah I love that that like complimentary thing that that they do because um, it's just I don't know I, I feels like sometimes with like you know kind of with more like mediocre romantic comedies like you just like kind of wonder like what kind of thought went into the stuff like that mm-hmm. and like I think the reason why like the genre kind of does get dogpiled is that um, there's just doesn't seem to be a lot of like vision or like specific like specific style to it which you know some people may agree or disagree but I think with Down with Love you can even if you don't like the movie you have to agree that like they made it so it's so painful mistakenly designed that everything it's like so this really captures that the like that feeling of just like being very like whimsical and um like surreal and and really like fantastical yeah there are a lot of romantic comedies that are fine and maybe the comedy is okay and the romance is okay but they're just sort of like amorphous as cinema yeah. they have no real style or language or thought like you said to them and so down with love i think like you said even if you watch this and you're like this isn't for me or i hate this it's very clear that peyton reed and his team put time and effort into creating something unique and special this is not a slapdash movie this is well designed in every aspect from the top down to the to the music even it's all so thoughtfully designed and it evokes a time period and a tone and it's a tone that not many other movies in the last 20 or 30 years have even bothered to try and achieve which yeah. i think maybe is why over the years this has become held in in maybe higher esteem because 
it is increasingly a singular work. No, I can't think of really any other movie post Down with Love that's tried to do this era with this tone, with this sort of sexy, jazzy, whimsical, heightened language to it. Yeah, I definitely have to agree. I think this is very singular, and I, I think it's really hard to think of another example. Uh, or even an example of like a romantic comedy that tries to, or any kind of movie that really tries to like pinpoint a very specific subgenre. You know, like sometimes I feel like when movies are set in the past, like it, it's like, okay, yeah, you have the clothes, you have the music, but are you really trying to like, you know, uh, trying to like capture like how movies were made back then mm. and like like what the editing was like what the camera work was like what the costumes were like rather than just like trying to like play dress up and I, I think it's you know especially when it's like something like the 60s or like the 70s when like filmmaking was so specific back then yeah and now it's like well, yeah you can have like you know you can have the hair you can have the makeup but you're really capturing like the rhythm of those movies and you know some of them are better than others but I think Down With Love is a really great example of like how to like really like seriously capture like exactly how those movies were made and how they played the the only other one that just came to mind and you know i know this movie is controversial because some people love it and some really don't is the artist Mm -hmm. um at, at least as far as the movie that was made more recently but tried to make it feel like it was a movie made during the time when it takes place yeah um, and it's very stylized in its own way. But yeah, it, it's, you don't see it that often. You know, there's a lot of movies set in the 60s and 70s, but they feel like it was made today. Yeah. Which is and, not invalid. It's just a different approach. It's just a different approach. And, um, you know, and I also, like, you have to think about, like, actors like, um, you know, Renee Zellweger and Ewan McGregor, like, they both, um, they just, like, can be like placed into any era you know they have modern faces when they need it but they also have you know period faces and um and i think renee zellweger especially has such a like i don't know i i really i can't always capture her energy i can't quite describe it but she just really um she fits so well into the 1960s you know i think because she can be very um i don't know she just she can just like really capture that like she could be like not stilted but just have that like affectation sometimes and that's why she was so good in Chicago and why I think she's quite good in Judy as well like she just can has this good like control over um how she like presents herself there are definitely some actors who you see in a period piece and you don't buy it because there's just something about them that's so modern. Yeah. And I agree that both Renee and Ewan have a timeless quality that allows them to slip into any era. Renee especially. And I think the surest example of that in this movie is the pattern of the language. Mm-hmm. This script is, is pretty dense. Um, yeah. It's written by Eve Allert and Dennis Drake. And there's a very distinct rhythm to the language language and it's it's so fast paced there are tons and tons especially towards the end of the movie of monologues and speeches where the actor has to hit certain beats and there there's this this just sort of like pitter patter that certain actors would not be able to keep up with and Renee in this movie especially keeps up with it so well and she feels like she fits in the 60s and in this world so perfectly and what's great too is you know in this movie her character comes to New York with like one suitcase and is a fish out of water 
and then sort of grows up and explodes and becomes a socialite and very famous. And Renee plays both of those so well because we've seen her do the sort of aw shucks down home kind of character like in Cold Mountain, for example, yeah. which I believe she won an Oscar for. But then she can also play, you know, someone more elegant and sophisticated. And she gets to show sort of both sides of that uh, range in this character. Yeah, yeah. I I really like Renee Zellweger as an actress. I mean, I really think a, a lot of movies that, that she's done, I really appreciate. Like, you know, the ones you mentioned, Jerry Maguire, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, um, and and I think it's it's kind of interesting how she kind of went away for a while, you know, prob- maybe not, to, you know, of her own accord, but um, she kind of she, she came back, won an Oscar, then now she's, like, gone again, which I think is kind of iconic. Well, she had, she, she had that... Um, um, that television miniseries oh, right, um, right. this year or last year, I can't remember what it's called. Yeah. Um, which she did in like, uh, oh, the thing about Pam, which was right, this year right. where she was in like a lot of heavy prosthetics in a fat suit. Um, and I do think she's most likely going to get like Emmy and SAG nominations and whatnot for sure, it. Sure. So she, she did duty, got her Oscar, took her break and was like, all right, let's get the Emmy. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of iconic. I think she's, she, her career is so, she's had such longevity yeah. that she does not need to work frequently. She can just pick and choose the project she wants to do and yeah. sort of disappear. And she's also maintained an air of privacy. She's not someone you really see that often, like in the tabloids or in gossip magazines. So, and and that's really unique. It almost lets, gives her like an air of mystery, like, oh, I wonder wonder what Renee Zellweger is up to right now. Nothing? She's just living? Good for her. Yeah. Yeah, she's like, yeah, very much living her life, and I, I appreciate that about her. Um, kind of moving down the cast list, and we mentioned Sarah Paulson, and I want to talk about her and David Hyde Pierce, um, because I, when I, I watched this movie on June 1st, which is the first day of Pride Month, and I was like, I think this movie kind of counts as a queer movie, just because of, you know, I think Zip Martin, of course, uh, which is Ewan McGregor's character's kind of, like, persona, I think he's kind of riffing on that, like, you know, that, like, kind of gay stereotype from the 60s of, like, Mm -hmm. dandy type, you know, uh, that Rock Hudson would kind of play when he's kind of masquerading uh, in, in, like, pillow talk and such. Um, And then, of course, you know, Sarah Paulson and David Hyde Pierce are both, you know, you know, queer veterans, queer legends, you know, in Hollywood. And um, and I feel like just them being in a movie like this, which is, like, so campy and so, um, you know, stylized, just feels very, uh, you know... It just feels very queer to me, even if this is, you know. Yeah, I, I agree. This this movie radiates queer energy, even yeah. though the romances in it end up being straight. Um, as you said, both Sarah Paulson and David Hyde Pierce are openly queer. Ewan McGregor has a long history of playing queer roles and yeah. stuff like Velvet Goldmine, which I'm a big fan of. And, you know, he just did Halston, where he played queer. Um but the but the energy too the costumes the the pacing of it the music it's it's very queer um and it's really fun like sarah paulson and david Hyde pierce are extraordinary in this movie um and they work so well together because they're both both of them are actors who have a certain over-the-topness to it but it's an over-the-topness that somehow never takes away 
from anyone else. Yeah. Like, if you watch Frasier, for example, which is my personal favorite sitcom maybe ever, but certainly of the 90s, everyone's like, Friends, Seinfeld, Will and Grace. And yeah, those shows are good, but for me, Frasier is the highest tier of 90s sitcoms. And so much of that is because of David Hyde Pierce, because he, he... bursts into a scene and he commands the attention and he's silly and zany and over the top but then he can just as easily be generous and let the other actors have their moment to shine and play off them well and Sarah Paulson is very much the same kind of actor over the top but generous and so when you have these two together their chemistry and this sort of like energy that radiates from them together sort of soars off the screen yeah um they work so so well together and i think they have such similar comedic styling that the two of them together in this movie is almost lightning in the bottle yeah so first of all i love frazier too um i love frazier so much that i have to stop myself from watching it all the time because uh you know that's like a show that i watch like when i'm trying to fall asleep and sometimes i'm like i feel like i just it's i can't watch it too much because i don't want to get sick of it um so i have to be like okay you've watched it already this year maybe wait until the end of the year <laughs> um, before you go through I, the rotation of the yeah, I, re- you know, I rewatched the whole series during covid lockdown yeah um, it's great, and I agree. David Hyde Pierce is, you know, it's uh, he's magnificent in, in the show and and on uh, and in the film. And um, if I recall correctly, neither were out publicly at the time, although I'm sure they were out in their private lives. Right. So I I want to say like I would love to be like yeah, in this movie like it was sort of this like oh like kind of like winking thing, but I feel like it might have just been sort of you know coincidence that they were brought together for you know for this role but maybe not who knows right um well because there is the sort of subplot that uh vicky uh sort of at times thinks peter who is david i pierce's character might be gay right right um so even if it wasn't like deliberately winking because of the casting there is still an element of that in the character's relationship and even though in the way that they like their dynamic feels very like anti-heteronormative right because yes. it's very it feels very like she's like the more dominant more mm-hmm. like you know uh independent one and he's kind of more needy you know i think of like she has top energy he has bottom energy so yes. i think fair, that fair. like i think that there's i think I agree with you what you were saying earlier that there's like queerness all over this movie even if it is but to nominally heterosexual romances because I think that there's ways to interpret both of these romances as like having some element of like queer undertones or at least like kind of a queer metaphor or analogy you know um, I think in like the the, the Renee Ewan romance you know I, I think this idea of like um I don't know. Maybe I. Maybe there isn't a queer metaphor there. Maybe you can help me out there. I'm trying to. I'm trying to. Well, I. I'm, I, I, I'm trying I, to like well, articulate this theory you know, as I'm thinking about it. <laughs> you know, Ewan's character Catcher Block is so much of a ladies' man, man's man, man yeah. about town. Um, you know, he's a player and a playboy, and in order to woo the woman he wants to woo, he has to put on play a character, right? So he's yeah. putting on a mask. He's putting on a mask of a more repressed. Right. Um, right innocent person and especially i would imagine in the 60s but even today to a certain extent a lot of queer people put on a mask to acclimate more into society especially you know in places where 
being queer is not as accepted as it might be in New York today. Um, so there is an inherent element of when you have to pretend to be someone that you're not in order to try and woo or, or acclimate into certain people who might not accept you for who you are, there's something that could be read as queer about that. I'm not sure that theory holds immense water, but he is definitely, a lot of the characters in this movie are wearing a mask yeah. in order to fit in and achieve their goals when being themselves would not get them what they're looking for. Yeah, I mean, if you think about Renee Zellweger's character, Barbara, and how she be- first starts out as this like kind of like meek you know, I think before the events of the movie, she starts out as, as this, like, meek, sort of mousy secretary, and then she becomes more, as she, like, you know, puts on the persona of Barbara, then she's more colorful, she's blonde, she's more active, she's more, and so it's kind of like, you know, you guess you could think of it as, like, pre-closet, post-closet. Sure. And, you know, she becomes Barbara at the end of the movie, you know. And what a closet this character has. I those know. outfits, those frocks and hats, and oof. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, it's every every gay man's dream uh, to look at those outfits. Um, I, yeah, and, you know, so, okay, speaking of the mask, we have to talk about, I think, sort of the one of the best parts of the movie, at least in my opinion, which is Renee Zellweger's unbroken monologue. Yes. Um, which I, I, I'm pretty sure I tweeted out the entire monologue one day after watching this movie. <laughs> in like a seven tweet thread because uh, I, I find it to be so fascinating um, and such a brilliant again like Peyton Reed's kind of visual you know visual artistry is to have this monologue be like three minutes long unbroken and just full of this like zany exposition and take it seriously but as it goes on it's just it's like that Family Guy thing where it's like the longer it goes, the funnier it is. Yes, absolutely. you know, even if it's, she's not telling jokes, but just the fact that it keeps going and going, and you know, her her backstory is just so convoluted, and all she and even to think about her deception had to rely on so many things happening exactly how she predicts it. Um, so it's just it's I think the centerpiece of the movie. It's so like I think I, that's the one thing I remember. Um, when I saw it, and even like kind of like in like the long period of time when I has hadn't seen it in a while, that was the one thing that I always remembered. I always tried to find on YouTube, and I think I think there is a YouTube video of it, so at least check that out if you haven't seen it, because I think it's quite an achievement in acting, directing, editing, and uh, performance and and writing as well. Yeah, that 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 scene is one absolutely one of the highlights of the movie and it sort of is like the punctuation like the exclamation point on everything this movie is trying to do yeah you know and you and mcgregor's character is just sort of sitting there increasingly both i think impressed and baffled by what barbara has achieved yeah. <laughs> and as the audience you're just like oh my god renee you are killing this very very long complicated monologue yeah and and what she, the exposition she's giving is increasingly absurd and ridiculous. Yeah. And it like stretches any reasonable metric of contrivance and coincidence. But every person I would argue involved in this movie was so in on the gag that it just works. It works so well, yeah. It works so well. Like part of me is like, oh, well a lot had to go right for this to go right, but but it sells me that this all went right because it's this very heightened world that they've created. Right, yeah, yeah. And it's like, they can only pull that off because they pulled off everything else coming before it. Like, if 
if this movie doesn't work in the first hour and a half, the last ten minutes just does not work, right? No, you're you're like rolling your eyes and you're exactly. like, exactly, this, this is silly. And it, it really made me wonder. I mean, I'd love to hear your opinion on this of like how, you know, like sometimes people are like, oh, this movie has so much exposition, or there's like so much, and you know, you could see a version of this movie where like there's a flashback, or the movie starts with you know her as a secretary instead of starting with her as the author, and you know, there's just like ways that you can like work around like instead of having it be like an unbroken monologue but i'm like kind of exposition exposition doesn't have to be so like scary or you know tiresome if you do it in a way that is creative and imaginative and kind of like makes the filmmaking part of the exposition instead of just having it be like well you know this you know you know, we need this part of the ship to make this, you know, I don't know, that's like some right. like sci-fi example that I can't think of, but like, you know what I mean? Like, I think exposition can be bad only when it's like boring and when it's just like kind of like, okay, let's just get through it because we need, we need this information to like get to the end point. But like with this movie, it shows that you can do this kind of exposition in a really like creative kind of eccentric way. Yeah, I mean, so like I went to film school um and when you take screenwriting classes or you talk to anyone about the art of screenwriting they say show don't tell show don't tell show don't tell yeah which eight times out of ten is the right approach but then now i work in the theater that is where i do a lot of my creative work Mm -hmm. and on stage most of the time you have to tell not show especially in plays there's very you're very limited as to what you can do you can't have like montages you could do flashbacks but still plays are very language heavy and in order to fill in the audience on maybe the past of the characters it's speeches and monologues and down with love the set design and and all of the aspects we've talked about already are so affected that it has a theatrical quality to it Mm -hmm. you almost feel like you are watching at times a play Um, And so because that tone is established and everything leading up to this monologue works in that, this feels so on point for this movie. And like you said, is a great example of how exposition doesn't have to be scary if it's done right. And Renee and Peyton and everyone has their tongue in their cheek a little bit in this moment. They're like, we got you and we're going to just show you how much we got yet and how much thought we put into all of this and pull out the rug not only from catcher and peter but from you the audience right and i think too i obviously i said i've watched this so many times when you look back at the way catcher treats his assistants they've planted the seeds early on you just don't necessarily realize that those are seeds that are going to grow into something right. more mm-hmm. relevant later on and so that's really thoughtful in in its writing yeah yeah i agree with you i think this movie is very um very cleverly uh very cleverly written um and i think as you as you watch it more as you know someone watches it over and over again you know a lot of that really stands out to you and this is definitely a very watchable movie as you know as there- you said <laughs> There, there's one scene, if I may, that I would love to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that I think is the like signature visual moment of the movie that shows just how clever and talented a filmmaker Peyton Reed is, and it's the split screen. Sequence. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. Um, ever so often on Twitter, a prompt will come up: "What's the best use of split screen in cinema?" Mm-hmm. And I always bring this up. Yeah. Um, because you know you have Catcher in his apartment and Barbara in her apartment, 
and the split screen shifts from horizontal to vertical and they're on the phone with each other but combined with where their bodies are placed and what they're doing and the the language they're saying it has some really funny simulated sex acts that's not sex at all but it almost stretches the boundaries of pg-13 yeah full-on looks like cunnilingus yeah and all of and 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 other types of oral sex and it's it is so beautifully executed but also so 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 deeply funny it's yeah it's so good and i agree it's like it's, I mean, it takes that kind of stuff from, like, the 60s movies and really amps it up to 11 and just makes it so... It's so funny. It's so... I agree. It's very much like, wow, I can't believe they got away with this. You know, I think this movie is about PG-13. Yeah. It's like, I can't I can't believe it. Um, and it's really quite... Uh, again, it shows his sort of, like, knack for visual language and, like, how to create some, like, really great sight gags and um, ones that are, like, funny and memorable and really like um because like in a movie like this you know they, they can't have sex right so it's like this is like the way of showing them like have that and, and as they're flirting on the phone but like they're flirting but like not flirting yeah it's really really great great work um well you know like you said so much of the the character work in this movie is abstaining from sex yeah catcher's pretending to be zip martin who is so much more innocent and isn't the type of guy who wants to dive into bed on the first date and then Barbara, because her book Down With Love is about resisting and it's about eating chocolate when you're aroused and is about finding someone to settle down with and not just being, you know, played by these playboy men. They are falling for each other in their own way. Yeah. And and playing with each other, as we find out, they're both manipulating each other and both lying about their identity, which um, I think you know, erases any notion of sexism in this movie because they're both doing the same thing to each other. They're both lying and playing characters to trick each other. But it allows the characters to have sex and have that release without actually having sex. And for the an audience member, that's really, really fun and exciting. And yeah. I can't think of many other examples where there's, there's there, you know, there's stuff definitely where, like, it'll look like a character is, like, humping another character or this that and the other thing but it's not done with as much wit as this sequence yeah yeah definitely i think yeah there's so much um wit and sort of that tongue-in-cheek element that really helps helps this movie really get um just to become i don't know just like better on rewatch you know the more you notice these things like the the more you watch it the more you notice it um something you said earlier about how theatrical this movie is i was wondering like um if this movie had been, like, a bigger hit, I think we might have seen, like, a Broadway musical adaptation. I'm surprised that, I mean... A hundred, a hundred I mean, I'm sure at some point we might, just because, like, this feels... Well, this movie feels like a musical, even without music. It does. So, the score is written by Mark Shaman, who mm-hmm. is a very good composer and has a deep history on Broadway. He famously wrote the score for the musical adaptation of Hairspray. Right. Um, which is probably his most well-known work. Um, but he, I believe he also wrote the Catch Me If You Can musical. So he has experience um, in that time period. Mm-hmm. Right? So, yeah. And, and I knew I loved this movie when I was watching it. 
the first time and I knew it was going to become like an all-time favorite when the closing credits have a musical number. Yeah. And not just a throwaway musical number, but an incredible musical number. It's really good. (laughs) In high school, I was in the chorus and I did theater. You know, I'm sure you're all shocked to hear all that. Um, And my school did this event where students could perform whatever they wanted. And my friend and I did this song. The, the Down With Love oh, song. Oh, that's so cute. Here, it's called Here's to Love from the closing credits. So it's a great song. So yeah, I, even though it wasn't a hit, I would almost argue that puts it on better footing to be a successful Broadway musical because I think it, I'm going to go on a little uh, tangent here about movie to musical adaptations. We increasingly see movies being adapted into Broadway musicals, and it seems like the popular notion is to pick really popular movies, because then you have a built-in audience who's going to buy tickets. Yeah. But I think more often than not, this doesn't quite work, because the movies are so well-known and beloved, there's so many preconceived notions and expectations about what the audience wants to and expects to see, that it ends up not fully working when it's translated into a musical. So taking something like this, which is not as well-known, not as popular, and so, you know, stylistically and thematically suited for a musical, could make for a a really great musical. And again, you already have a composer involved who has done tons of work on Broadway. So... If anyone out there is listening and you want to team up with me, let's turn. I was going to say, you know, we have a award-winning producer on, yes, on the, that, that on the call. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, kind of tying this back to you and McGregor in a way. Have you seen Moulin Rouge the musical? Or I have seen it a couple times. Yeah, uh, how do you like it? So. I, I love it. Um, I actually, uh, the first time I saw it, it, a lot of shows will do an out-of-town tryout before mm-hmm. it comes to New York. So it, it played in Boston in the summer of 2018. So I did a, a, a me-cation. I took the train from New York to Boston, got myself a hotel room. And in order to make the trip worthwhile, I saw both the matinee and the evening performance on the same day. Um, and I think it's it's quite, quite good. Um, it makes changes from the yeah and that's what i like about it i'm i think fidelity and adaptation is boring if i wanted to see the same thing i would just watch that thing yeah in terms of like book to movie adaptations people are like it's not like the book it's so different okay sometimes it misses the point but then i'm also like well if i wanted the book i would just read the book again and i think the best adaptations which i think moulin rouge is maintains the soul and the spirit of the piece while also making choices that make it work in its own medium and the moulin rouge stage show brings in a lot of more recent pop songs to it and it it works really fun and there's a couple shifts to the character dynamics like on stage the duke is more sexy and um confident as opposed to richard roxburgh in the movie right. a little more of a sniveling weasel um so it still feels like moulin rouge but it cements its own identity that's great to hear. I was thinking about trying to um, trying to go see it. I was kind of I was worried it would just be kind of turned into like a you know boomer pandering like jukebox musical. Um, sort of like it, like it is a li- it it does have elements of that, but okay. it, it still it still maintains the romance and spirit of the bohemian lifestyle, and. Um, 
the theatricality of it, the set design, the costumes yeah. is extraordinary. Um, if you want to go, I'll, I'll happily go with you. Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely. I take Moulin Rouge very it. seriously. I, I know this is only an audio podcast, but I do have "Come What May" tattooed on my wrist. <laughs> I'll show you. But... Oh yeah, it looks great. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So. Yeah, well, that's great to hear because uh, since you're such a fan of the film, I wanted to make sure that like it was like honoring the integrity of the film, even with its. I mean, changes. I I agree with you. I don't mind changes. Um, I think in some ways they're more interesting than just kind of adapting it, like you know, a, like a Xerox copy. Um, right. And, and, and uh, you know, you know yeah. not to make this the Moulin Rouge podcast, but Baz Luhrmann was pretty heavily involved in the stage adaptation okay. and his wife produced it they were involved yeah. in the theater process um you can even go to the merch stand and purchase a candle a moulin rouge candle in which the scent was designed by baz and his wife <laughs> which i have and smells quite good because uh, that's the kind of person i am yeah, so, yeah it, it it feels it has the soul of the film while also doing its own thing which that's the best adaptation, I would argue. Yeah, awesome. Well, that's great. And, you know, it is related to Down With Love because, you know, obviously, well, I'm, I don't know if you've heard this, but um, the musical numbers, because, like, they wanted to, I guess, like, cash in on slash honor the fact that, like, Renee and Ewan were both in these, like, classic, you know, era-defining I, musicals before, yeah, I, like, I Chicago and Moulin Rouge. Rouge and, then, and then Chicago, like, brought the musical back into the popular lexicon yeah i agree and so it's almost like we have the two stars of the two biggest musicals coming together in this amazing crossover event of course they have to sing i mean i can't think of any musical before these two that were like as like you know as big a phenomenon as those two were like there's really nothing until until i think it gets to like the 60s there's like some some indie like Hedwig and the Angry Inch, and then there's sure, some other sure. ones that that. But in terms of like hitting big, yeah, and capturing wide audiences, those were the two. Those yeah. were the two that really, you know. And I think now we we have uh, like I've talked about this a lot. For me, 2021 was the year of the movie. Oh music. yeah, yeah. There's so many great like, ones. So many of my favorite movies of that year were musicals, but musicals are not always the most popular. And Moulin Rouge in Chicago were popular chicago won best picture um and then down with loves tried to capitalize on that and even though it wasn't a box office hit i think looking back now in terms of like the history of cinema and changing trends down with love is a really important movie because it's sort of like the next logical step from the re-boom of movie musicals yeah yeah and I think as as uh, as you had mentioned, you know earlier that like this is such a singular movie, and um, you know it's like kind of like the kind of movie that you know just, it didn't launch a you know a you know a, a huge like uh, cohort of ripoffs. You know, it, probably it, a good thing. It, it, and I agree. I think that's a great thing. And I think that when that happens, uh, you kind of have to, you know, it's a whole like. No, Seinfeld thing, right? It's like because our friends too. There's like so many knockoffs that, like, when you watch the original, you're like, "This isn't that great." I've seen it before, even though there were, you know. And I think that, like, yeah, you know, there was Dad a lot of love. like there was. I think there was a show called "It's Like You Know." Yeah, yeah, I remember and that. And wasn't there one called Yada? Yada? I don't know. There's a lot of Seinfeld ripoffs in the '90s that are 
truly terrible. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think it's really great that Down With Love can remain this, like, you know, crystallized version of itself and has that integrity. And I'm glad, I mean, it's on HBO Max now. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I remember, like, tagging Payne Reed being like, is there any chance of a Criterion release, you know? Um, or any kind of, like, Shout Factory Blu-ray or something. Shout Factory would make perfect sense. Yeah, I think it needs to have that kind of revival. And I think it's, I mean, it's, it's been growing over and over. And I think people like David Sims, who are big champions of it. Um, yes. You know, I remember him on his podcast where they talked about the Ant-Man movies, talked about this movie a lot. So I think people like that just, like, kind of bringing it up to... Uh, up into the conversation is really important. I, I had tweeted about this movie once and tagged the actors, and Sarah Paulson tweeted back at me and said, so I, I'm paraphrasing, but something to the effect of that's still one of the best experiences of my career and one of my favorite things I've ever been in. So I think it's clear everyone involved in making this movie holds it really, really fondly. Yeah, like, I would love to see, like, an hour-long documentary with uh, everyone involved, just, or, like, an oral history, since those are so popular. Because yes. I just, like, you know, it's one of the, it's like, it's like, you know, um, <laughs> it's <laughs> like, uh, I think that uh, there's some movies where you can just tell that everyone had a great time, and there's some movies where you can tell that everyone looks back on those films with a lot of fondness, and that it was a great experience, and that that really translated. This is one of those movies where I want to uh, like live in that world. I, I want to see a sitcom with, with you know, like a te- you know, I just want I just want more of it. And so um, I think it's it comes across with this movie, and that's why it's so rewatchable. That's why it's so singular. That's why it's so special, and why I agree that it's such an important movie of the two thousands. Yeah, I I agree with everything you're saying. Um... If I, I will, especially since it's been on HBO Max, I will occasionally see a tweet of someone being like, oh, wow, I can't believe I had never seen this before or never yeah. heard of it. And it's so delightful. And so the fact that it's it continues to be discovered and appreciated is really nice. And maybe you know, maybe we're crafting our own narrative here. I'm not so sure. But I do think that the further away we get from the 2000s, from the aughts, if you will, mm-hmm. um, it is it is an important movie and I, I think um, it, it it's really singular and and um, uh, is gonna be one that the more and more we get away from it the more people are gonna love and appreciate it and revisit it if yeah. not reassess it because I've even seen some notable critics who you know sort of passed it off as like oh this is just a hacky ripoff of the 60 sex comedies have come back to mm-hmm. it and, and found a new appreciation for it as I yeah. paused for the lovely New York City siren. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and, you know, it, it is disappointing that this movie was um, not a huge hit at the box office, but I don't know, box office glory kind of comes and goes, but a movie having lasting impact, you know, yes. almost 20 years after it releases, to me, that's, like, more important. And, Absolutely. Um, so I, yeah, I totally agree with everything you're saying, and I, I think it's uh, really wonderful. The only other thing I want to mention is this movie introduced me to someone who has become one of my favorite uh, musical artists, and that's Michael Bublé. Um, oh, yeah. This was really, really early on in his career. Um, he did a couple songs on the soundtrack, and I remember vividly because I could drive at the time this movie came out because in Florida they give kids licenses because there's no public transportation. <laughs> 
I, I saw the movie and then I drove to Barnes and Noble and bought the CD. Remember CDs, kids? <laughs> I bought the CD soundtrack, put it into my car CD player immediately and listened to it the whole way home and was so taken by Michael Buble's throwback, buttery, crooner voice. And I still love him. I, every album he releases, I get day one. I've seen him in concert a couple times. Um, and he's the perfect artist for this movie because he very much feels like the same sort of throwback yeah. to the 60s, if not before that, when you had guys like Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra who were the most popular popular musical artists yeah i think you know his inclusion in the film feels very much like you know it's just again it's that thing of like finding people in the modern era who just can belong in this Mm -hmm. you know the 60s period and they the way that they are their cadence their body language their dialogue delivery everything just feels like so such a perfect you know parody pastiche homage whatever to that i'm glad i'm glad you used the word pastiche because i think pastiche is sometimes incorrectly used as a pejorative Mm -hmm. and i think this is a great down with love as a film is a great example of pastiche done right yeah. It's a it's a loving homage to an era and a type of movie that also succeeds as its own work. And that's a really great place to end here. Um, Maxwell, please share with the listeners what you're working on, where they can find you, and how they can sort of keep up with everything that you're doing and up to. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Cinemaxwell. That's mostly where I'm at. I tweet a lot, so apologies in advance. Um, I also recently started a YouTube channel with my best friend Amber. It's Ember Productions. You can follow us on Twitter at Ember Products. That's E-M-B-E-R-P-R-O-D-U-X um, We do all sorts of fun stuff like, um, you know, like episode reviews of The Boys, which just started, and Obi-Wan. Um, we're doing some theme park content, and we're also going to be diving into a lot of Broadway content, because both of us produce theater. Um, so we're going to be doing some video essays on some of our favorite musicals, um, and uh, sort of relaunching a show I used to do called Front Center Mezzanine. We'll probably call it something else, but where we'll be doing interviews with theater professionals and actors um yeah so those are those are the two main things i got going on right now yeah great all that is very exciting i'm definitely gonna watch your obi-wan uh reviews because i'm really enjoying it so um really looking forward to just getting more more hearing more analysis and, and all that about that and of course you know we have to go see a show together sometime yeah absolutely i have like a whole list of shows i'm like dying to see that i'm trying to figure out ways to see it on a student student budget <laughs> yes um, well, thanks to, uh, thanks to you for uh, for being here, and uh, thanks to listeners. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Vertigate314. Also, please follow the podcast at ThePodWU. Uh, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show to help you find it. Um, I'm going to try to really bring the show back more regularly throughout the summer. Um, and uh, I think the next episode I'm just going to be on Satyajit Rai's uh, Chadulata, which is on my Korean channel on HBO. Max and I normally don't announce it but I'm trying to hold myself accountable to make sure that I make this happen this summer uh, and get back into the groove of it um, so thanks for listening, thank you Maxwell and uh, everyone have a great day Bye.